Thanks, Steve. Well, it is good to be with all of you again this morning, and uh, we are um, working our way through this Gospel of John. And uh, if you've uh, missed a couple of Sundays, I would encourage you to go to um, our website, and you can certainly listen to the uh, sermons that took place before. Even in preparation for home groups, sometimes it's a good idea just to refresh your your mind about what's going on. Um, Funny thing is, I actually listen to myself because I learn things about myself in preaching. It's kind of a strange thing. Um, I know it's, I'm just strange. It's just a weird thing that way. But the reality is sometimes you forget about things that you're even teaching or sharing. And it's good to go back and be reminded and just you know, remember those things and put them, really put them in the recess of your, your thinking. So I would just encourage you to do that. Today, um, we are in chapter 2. But last week, we finished chapter 1. And that friends, is very, very significant. Um, It's not that chapter 1 is insignificant. We found it to be very, very significant for a number of reasons, right? Um, 51 verses screaming at us concerning the person and the work of Jesus. And in fact, if you could boil it down down to two statements or two descriptions of Jesus, it would be Jesus is the Word and Jesus is the Lamb of God. Now, there were other statements that were thrown out by John or by those that were testifying about who Jesus is in that passage, but that certainly um, is where uh, where things were being uh, were going and how Jesus was being unveiled in that chapter. So, if you ever want to go to a, a a chapter in the Bible that declares that Jesus Christ is God, this is one of the chapters to go to. Okay, um, so as we come to chapter two. Uh, I think it's important for us to step back a little bit and to see the greater context of things and the unfolding structure of John's argument. And remember, what we have up here up on the screen is John's purpose statement. This is in John chapter 20 and verse 30 and 31. I would encourage you, if you are in the habit of memorizing scripture, that this would be a good one to memorize because we are going to use it probably week after week after week because this tells us why John wrote this book. And when you know why he wrote the book, it helps you see everything in its proper perspective. So here we have uh, John chapter 20 and verse 30 and 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written, these particular things that, that John has chosen, that he has selected here, are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ or the Messiah the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so remember, the three words that we use to describe what's going on in these two verses are, number one, evidence, secondly, belief, then life. John's gospel is all about laying out the evidence, showing you what took place, and not just showing you a story, but allowing you to see Jesus revealed in that story so that you would believe. But remember, belief is not the end. Belief is the beginning, so to speak, toward life. The evidence places, us, uh, places all the facts about Jesus before us, but this results in belief and ultimately produces life. And uh, so, so far, in, in chapter 1, if I want to summarize it a little differently, we did this last week, um, we have seen evidence that this man, Jesus, is the son of Joseph from the village of Nazareth, that he is the Messiah. And if you remember, that statement reminded us that Jesus is fully human, all right? And and I think it's very significant that it's brought out in chapter 1 along with the other stuff. Um, Andrew and John and Philip and Nathaniel were giving testimony to who Jesus is. And we also found out as we looked through that chapter that Jesus is God, he is the son of God, he is the king of Israel. We also found out that Jesus closes out this chapter, chapter 1, by identifying himself as the son of man. In other words, he is the mediator. So you have Jesus who is fully human, you have Jesus who is fully God, but you also have Jesus who is this mediator between man and God. All right, all in one chapter. Very clearly and specifically laid out primarily by virtue of the titles that are used to describe him. Now, it is also important that we 
recognize that John is organizing his material both chronologically, for the most part, and uh, topically. The, chron the chronology, though, is not the point. What's, what the, the real essence of what John is sharing with us is the topical or the theological implications of what he is declaring and what he is sharing. There are topics, there are themes that he is making sure that we are fully aware of. And so this helps us better understand the structure of John's gospel. And that's really what we want to just take a moment to look at here as we lay a foundation, not just for today, but for really a number of weeks to come. Um, you know, sometimes we think that, you know, the writer of, of these, these books, are just, they're just kind of going along. So, oh, I think I'll write about this. Oh, I think I'll write about it. No, he, he has a purpose that he is seeking to accomplish, and he's very selective and careful about unfolding his arguments so that those readers can come to a conclusion. All right? And so we want to make sure we're tapping into understanding what that looks like. John chapter 2 and verse 4, I want you to notice what it says. Jesus said to her, speaking to, to Mary, he says, Woman, what does this have to do with me? Um, my hour has not yet come. And we are introduced then in verse, uh, verse 4 of chapter 2, to a theme that is throughout this book, and it's the theme of the hour, the hour, okay? And this word hour is used in reference to the time of Jesus' death, as well as all the things that happen around that. So when Jesus says, my hour has not yet come to Mary, he's saying, listen, the time right now for, for me to be, used in the way maybe that you're thinking or that you're telling me I need to do X, Y, and Z. It's not there yet. In fact, uh, as, we, as we see the, the not yet part of the hour, that goes through chapter 12. It's after chapter 12 that the hour expression is changed and it becomes the hour is at hand. So let's just try to put that together. Chapters 1 through 12 um, have historically been called the book of signs where the hour has not yet come. And all these signs we're going to see unfolded in here, and I'm going to give you the, the content of that in just a minute, minute. But there's a second group, and that would be a book of glory. And that would be the hour when it is at hand. So that's when all the, the stuff starts happening. Now, that's really directly related to the death of Christ, the Passion Week, and all the details and experiences that are going on that God is revealing through John about his son and the events of his death. That's all taking place then from chapters 13 um, and following. So as we take a closer look at the book of signs, that first section, verse, chapters 1 through 12, uh, we'll see that John wants to show his readers how Jesus reveals himself as the Messiah. Um, I would like for you just to get your Bibles now and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And there's a verse of scripture that I think summarizes what is going on here in, uh, in this particular section of John's gospel. Paul summarizes it very well. I don't think he necessarily had this in mind, but what he says is really something you can lay over this passage. Look at verse 17. We'll go back to verse 16. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, the old has passed away, behold, the new has come. And the argument that John is going to give basically is an argument after argument after argument, story after story, sign after sign, saying, listen, the old has passed away, the new has come. Okay? So he's, he's taking us in a, in a transition, so to speak, and his audience, the Jews, would be taken through this transition of saying, well, the old has passed away. There's something new that is on the scene. And ultimately, it's Jesus. It's the Messiah. Here is how who Jesus is that we found out in chapter 1 is going to be fleshed out and seen and on display for all of us as we go through this book. And let's just, again, summarize it as we go through these next through a few uh, chapters. Here are just the, the basic ideas. He's first going to identify institutions in which uh, that, you know, that are present in Judaism, in which he is going to be revealed. He's going to be shown to be the Messiah, all right? The wedding that we're going to look at today, the cleansing of the temple, his interaction with Nicodemus, uh, the woman at the well. These are all institutions that are 
that are incredibly important to the, to the Jews, but Jesus comes in the midst of them and he reveals himself in ways that will be contrary to what is going on in the norms of those institutions. Okay? Secondly, we have festivals in Judaism. Sabbath, the Passover, Tabernacles, Hanukkah. Okay? Uh, these are all going to be arenas and opportunities for Jesus to display his glory. And so John is going to reveal for us those ways in which Jesus displays his glory, displays who he is, ultimately that he is the Messiah. So what we have here, though, is not an exhaustive list of every time Jesus did this. We have a selective list that John, under the inspiration of God, chose to reveal who Jesus is as the Messiah. Okay? So, as we just pause a moment here to consider this wedding at Cana, there is far more about the story of this wedding at Cana than simply a, a village and a family and the lack of wine and someone happens to miraculously provide wine, and isn't it great because the wine has now been served. There is a symbolism in all of this. John uses the word sign. Okay? Other gospel writers in their writings use the word miracle. A sign, though, is a little different than a miracle. A miracle is the actual act, the actual event, the actual supernatural activity. A sign, then, is a miracle with theological implications. In other words, there's something that Jesus is teaching us through the miracle. It's not just, oh, here's the miracle. Jesus is teaching something specifically. There's some symbolism there for us to catch and grab onto as he is performing this miracle. It is a sign. Okay, So it goes beyond a miracle. And that is where we pick up this story um, uh, we call the wedding at Cana. Would you join me, though, as we just have a word of prayer here, just to gather our thoughts with, with some of this backdrop and some of this understanding. Now, as we enter into the specifics of the word, uh, let's call on the Lord. Lord, help us today. You are um, always at work, always relevant to our present needs. Um, Lord, it is always, to me, amazing how you use each text of your word to speak to us, in ways that maybe we were not ready or thinking it would. And yet, Lord, you have your will that you desire to accomplish in us. And Lord, I ask that today I would simply be your mouthpiece, that you would speak, that you would have your way, that hearts would be humble and receptive. Lord, those that may embrace you as Lord and Savior would be strengthened and encouraged. Lord, those that don't know you or maybe even fighting against you, uh, Lord, would be challenged and they would experience the joy of regeneration in their lives, Lord. Uh, would you have your way, Lord? All the results are yours, and we, Lord, just desire to, to honor you as we listen, as we, as we consider your word, and, Lord, as we open uh, our mouths like I am doing, Lord, to preach your word, would you just accomplish your will, we ask in your name. Amen. So there's really four, four I might want to say, ways in which I want to unfold this passage. Just kind of take it sequentially, and as we do that, we'll, we'll pull out some, some key themes that I think are helpful for us. Um, some of them are sub-themes, but uh, and we'll, we'll, we'll kind of make sure we're clear on that. But here we have um, this, this, what I'm calling wedding, and we're calling it wedding wonders. Um, I, as a pastor, have the great privilege of officiating at weddings. Um, I am privileged to spend um, at least eight weeks in counseling. A little side note, if I'm going to be marrying someone, I require at least eight weeks of counseling and sometimes more depending on what counsel is necessary. I'm not a prophet for hire, okay? Um, doing weddings is not something that I as a pastor do on the side. I do weddings primarily for those who are people that are part of my flock. There may be a few exceptions, but um, that's God's calling for me, and I don't do weddings as much as I do marriages, Okay? We're building homes, we're uniting a couple together, and it's a great joy to be a part of that. I have the privilege of arriving early to a actual wedding and seeing the bridal party come and you know, watching the ladies go off into one room and the guys go off into the other room and every once in a while there'll be one popping out and coming out here and then we've got to get this and they're all 
you know, fixing things up and putting things in place. That's the guys, not the girls. And uh, yeah, they're, they're just as diligent about those things. But there's, there's a lot of buzz, there's a lot of joy, there's a lot of fun in that whole scenario. I get to, um, I get to you know, to, to look into the eyes of the bride and groom as I am actually doing the wedding. Now, they have no clue what's going on. They can't understand or hear a thing that I'm saying. That's why I have to prompt them every now and then that now's the time to nod your head or shit, you know what? Because their minds are in other places. Um, but I, I get to see that because there's, there's a joy in them and there's an excitement in that moment. I get to see that first kiss close up um, and, and cough a little bit if it goes too long or something like that. Weddings are really a, a wonderful time, a time for celebration. And um, I, I think it's important for us to recognize that. Now, what we have here is a Jewish village wedding. This is something that took place in Cana, and Cana was not a huge place. It was not a, an uppity-up culture. It was simply a village. And much of the time when there was a wedding in a village, um, the whole village came out for the wedding. And um, it was a huge, huge time of celebration. It was a community affair. It typically lasted a week. Um, and the, the financial responsibility laid on the shoulders of the groom's family. Oh, how times have changed, All right? And, uh, uh, you know, so it was, it was a, a pretty, it was a huge, huge deal. Um, instead of having a honeymoon, the bride and groom were considered to be king and queen for the whole week. If they said it, I mean, obviously within the bounds of reasonableness, they got it. Um, they were the honored couple. It was, it was basically considered to be this is the biggest celebration and honor you will ever have as people. It will never get any bigger or better than this. Okay? So, so that, that marriage, that ceremony, that wedding, that whole thing was, was just a huge, huge time for the family, for the couple, and for the community. It was the grandest event in their life. Now, as we look at our passage, we are given at least a glimpse of a guest list, right? Go back to verse one. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. Now, let me just say this. I do think, um, I do think that uh, there is some significance to the fact that Jesus was invited and the disciples and Mary. Very, very likely, this was a family wedding, okay? And I think that it's also likely that this was maybe part of Jesus' extended family simply because of Mary's interaction and her concern about the, the fact that the wine was running out. I mean, typically, if you're just a, a guest at a wedding, you kind of know the family, you show up, you're not the one who's going back behind the scenes and saying, you know, is there any more punch? You know, you're usually sitting at the table saying, you know, what's up with this, all right? I mean, so I, I, I think either it was a family affair or... Um, Mary was very, very close with the people and the family that was getting married, okay? I think it's just important for us to recognize that. Secondly, I think it's important to, to note that Jesus was there at this wedding. He participates in this wedding. He is enjoying this wedding. There's nothing tells us that he is offended by it at all. And ultimately, he affirms it by meeting a need in that wedding. I, I simply say this uh, to reinforce a couple of things. There are some who struggle with the whole celebration of a wedding as something that maybe wouldn't honor God. Now, certainly there are things that can happen in a wedding that may not honor God, but simply a wedding ceremony and, and God-honoring celebration and joy and happiness is something that God is about. And Jesus' presence there affirms that and affirms the institution of marriage, okay? So I think we can certainly glean that out of this passage. Um, so I, I think it's important then to, just to recognize that weddings are good things, especially when they are Christ-centered, God-honoring, and a time to celebrate what God has called a couple to do, and that is to get married and uh, to live their lives for the glory of God. Now, most weddings run smoothly, but often behind the scenes, there can be a lot of panicking, bickering at times, and strife. And no one has to acknowledge anything about their own weddings at all. That's not the point. This is not confession time. Um, but you all know what I'm talking about. It can be a difficult scenario. And here's where we move into this next kind of scene in the wedding, and I'm calling it wedding woes. Wedding's going great. The couple 
are having a great time. The family and the guests are enjoying themselves. But verse 3 tells us, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, that's Jesus, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, does, uh, what does this have to do with me? My hour is not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, um, in the course of preaching through a book of the Bible, it is important to pause at times when there is uh, a significant reason to do so because this passage is a passage that um, uh, many religious institutions, in particular the Catholic Church, have taken to say something far different than what Scripture says about who Mary is and what she does. Now, I'll be the first one to say that Mary is... Uh, is a great character in Scripture. She is an example of someone who trusted God in very, very difficult circumstances. She honored him by being faithful to him as he gave her this message about having a son and, and you're a virgin, but you're going to have a child and his name is going to be Jesus and having to live with that shame. I think, uh, although we're not given tons of material about Mary, what we are given tells us that she certainly is one to be honored, to be respected, and to be an example for all women everywhere. Still, as is always the case, the religious systems of this world, in particular the Catholic Church, um, have raised her to a status that is not in accord with Scripture and sound biblical interpretation. I will show you that here. Um, there's a couple of errors that this passage speaks to, and it's important for us it's at least to pause here and to acknowledge those errors. All right, so the, here's the first error. Error number one is that, that Mary has influence over Jesus. And this is the basis for you, as a follower in the Catholic tradition, praying to Mary. Because the belief is that just like in this passage, when Mary told Jesus to change the water into wine, she has influence over him and she has influence over, over the whole process of salvation. Okay, that's the idea. Now let's look at this passage one more time and find out whether or not Mary actually is influencing her son or she is, uh, she is motivating her son um, or she is, might want to say, intercessing on behalf of other people so that Jesus will do X, Y, and Z. Verse 3, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Now, does that sound coercive to you? I mean, is she saying, Jesus, they have no wine, and you've got to make sure that that wine is produced from water. Is that what's going on? She's not coming alongside and saying, Jesus, I know all your powers and your gifts. Would you please bless this wedding by making wine out of this water? No, she doesn't. All she does is she says, they have no wine. Verse 4, and Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? In other words, uh, you know, I, I'm really not involved in this. This is not necessarily my concern. My hour has not yet come. That is a significant theological statement, but it's also his words to her. It is a mild, soft, loving rebu rebuke. The word woman here in our English language sounds very derogatory, right? Woman, you know, what have, what have I got to do with you, right? It, this, this, word, this doesn't translate well into the English language at all, okay? Um, at least for most of us it doesn't, all right? Um, yeah, on, on Thursday, do not say that to your mom, okay? It may not, it may not be helpful, right? But but in the, in the culture of Jesus' day, the word and the expression that's being used is actually a very endearing one, okay? It's a very respectful way to address his mother. In fact, this is how he addresses her from the cross, okay? And uh, it's a very, very endearing one. But it is still a mild rebuke. And there's, there's something very, very significant that's going on here. Listen, as a mom, um, I'm sure she is very, very very much concerned about her son. She probably has in the back of her mind the things that were told her you know, almost 30 years prior to that as the angel came and said, you know, your son is going to be you know, uh, the, the, the you know, prince of peace, the counselor of the mighty God, all that stuff. All, all this, this reality of who he's going to be. Now, we're not told too much about Jesus' growing up years, which I think is purposeful, 
but she has an awareness that, that he is going to be greatly used. And, um, and at the same time, um, every mother is concerned, I think, about the direction and the choices and that time where adulthood kicks in and that son finally says to mom, mom, this is what I need to do. Realizing that mom doesn't have all the authority over the son anymore. Tough, tough place to be because mom still wants to be able to come in and influence and say whatever she wants to say. Right, moms? It's a tough place. Now, there's more to that whole story that would be, be helpful. Um, I think there's a passage in Luke where the angel says that ultimately it w- this will feel like you're being stabbed internally with a sword. And I think moms experience that kind of feeling when that transition takes place. So this is a very endearing interaction that Jesus has with, with Mary. But clearly, this is not Mary commanding or telling Jesus what to do. Let's just kind of get the picture here. Jesus and his mother Mary are invited to a wedding in their village along with the disciples, and it would seem likely, like I said, that this is a family wedding. And apparently Mary is somewhat close with the family to the point that she steps in to try and help meet a need. It's not unusual um, that she would step in and meet the need and that she would ask her eldest to help her. All right? Imagine, right, this, this coming... Thursday, you're getting things ready, and you're the mom, and you have your oldest son around, and you turn to him, you say, hey, you know, can you take care of the stuffing? And he says, woman, my hour has not yet come, right? No, she's, she's, she's leaning on him to be responsible and just to, to help out with what's going on here, Okay. I don't think there's anything more going on here than that kind of interaction with her. Like, this is a family deal. What can we do? Can I, can I leave that with you to figure out? Okay? There's nothing in this text that, that tells us that Mary was cognizant that Jesus was the Messiah and that he was going to perform miracles and she was demanding that he was going to do that now. There's nothing in here that tells us that. That would be bringing stuff to the text. Okay? That's, that's, that's not there. If anything... Um, Mary's statement to Jesus a little later says, or to the servants, do whatever he tells you, is Mary relying on her son, uh, just like any mother would, to be resourceful and to be helpful. And ultimately, she is submissive to his will. They'll do whatever he says. Okay. So the whole idea here that she has influence over Jesus, this is a passage that they'll go to. And they'll say, see? See what she's doing? It's like it's, it's not there. It's forced on that text. Um, to say that Mary has an intercessory function with her son and to teach that we should then pray to her is nowhere found in this text. It is forced on the text. It's imposed on the text. It's a twisting of that text to say what it is not saying. Okay? And remember, John's purpose in this passage, go to verse 11 of this passage, John's purpose in this passage was to reveal, make Jesus known, make his glory known, not to make Mary's glory known. John says, this is, this is what's going on here, right? Doesn't it say that in verse 11? All right? This is the first sign. Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. If this were Mary, why is she not held up here by the writer of this gospel? Because it didn't happen. It's, it's not what took place. Okay? The second error is this. Um, this idea that, that uh, Mary is perpetually a virgin. That, in other words, that after she gave birth to Jesus, that she did not have any more sexual relations or didn't have any sexual relations with, with Joseph and thus had no children. Now look at verse 12. Now just let the plain sense be the main sense. Let's not try and read anything into this. Verse 12, after this, he, that's Jesus, went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers... You say, ah, see, those must be his Christian brothers, right? I mean, we're brothers and sisters in Christ, right? Well, no, because then it says, and his what? Disciples. And we, they've just come from a wedding. They've just come from a time that probably was a family affair. It's not surprising. It's not unusual. I think it's perfectly legitimate to say, let's allow the plain sense to be what it says. He went down with his brothers. 
and his disciples and his mother, and they stayed there for a few days. Okay? So it's, it's, it's just not taught in Scripture. It's very, very clear. But when you want to distort who Christ is, when you want to change the focus, when, when you want to undo the truth of the gospel, one of the ways you do that is to shift the emphasis and focus away from Christ and onto someone else. Now, please hear me. I, I said nothing in here about Mary being bad. If anything, Mary is an excellent example of what it means to follow God. But she is not God, and she is not intercessing or interceding on your behalf before Jesus or trying to influence him in any way, shape, or form. Scripture is very clear. We come boldly to the throne of grace. We don't come through an intercessor except for the mediator, who is Jesus, the Son of Man, that we've already just looked at. Now, let's get back to the actual story and what is truly happening. But I hope you understand why it was important to do that. This is probably the only passage, there's maybe one or two, where Mary is brought up. But this is a key one for those doctrines. Now, back to the story about what, truly what's going on. The problem is, Mary says they have no wine. Here's the entry point for all of us. This is the moment of crisis in this wedding. The wine has run out. The shame of the family is on the line. This breakdown in hospitality could result for the groom's family in a lawsuit. All right, in that culture, that's what would happen if that groom and his family were not faithful to make sure that the wedding was successful because then it would bring shame to the family of the bride. So there would be a lawsuit. And don't think of going to the courts and all that kind of stuff. It probably was some, you know, some sheep and cattle and all that kind of stuff that would be transferred over. But the whole idea is it would bring shame. And so the distress that you, I think you could read into that statement that Mary says they have no wine is a true reflection of the drama of the text. What is this family going to do? See, this is a real wedding woe. This is a real struggle. The wine has run out. Now you say, well, they can just go down to Safeway and pick up some Pepsi or something like that. Now you have to understand that wine was the drink of the day. Okay? And it was, the, it was the basis for having a celebration. It was expected. It was part of that culture. This is where the Messiah, the, the Word, the King of Israel, the Son of God, the Son of Man comes in. He is in the business, and here's the point. He is in the business of meeting people at the point of their need in ordinary life. It just happens to be a wedding here. In Cana, it was, we have no wine. In Castro Valley, it can be, I have no job. I have no money. I have no happiness or joy in life. I have no security. I have no orientation or goals for living. It could be, I lack comfort. I lack wisdom. I lack peace. I'm struggling with how I raise my kids. I'm struggling with how I'm supposed to discipline my little ones. I'm struggling with how I'm supposed to you know, uh, pursue my life and, and develop the gifts I have so I can land a decent job. It's being overlooked for a promotion at work. It's having to face the consequences of a past life of sin, even though now you are a child of God and you're sitting in jail wondering what's going on. Have no wine. The wine is all gone, and I need help. Enter Jesus. See, life is full of, you might want to call it mundane moments when we have no wine, it's all gone. We are, we are all spent. We are struggling. We are in need, desperate need. Jesus is not unaware. Jesus is very aware of what is going on. He can use a friend. He can use a family member. He can use a co-worker, brother and sister in Christ, or a complete stranger to accomplish his purposes. Sometimes he can come through a sermon, a song. It can be a, a, a person who is simply sharing something with you. It may not even be in a spiritual context, but he is speaking into your life. It is the center of our need that must uh, bring us to the place where we're asking these questions. Question number one, have I let Jesus in? 
Now, I'm speaking here, first of all, to those who are believers, those who would say they're followers of Christ. You cannot allow Jesus into an arena in your life because maybe you don't trust him. Maybe it's painful, but you're saying, no, I haven't let him in. Maybe here's the next question. Am I letting him be God? Am I letting him speak into my situation? Am I allowing him the freedom to do what he needs to do to accomplish his purposes? Am I allowing him to speak, and am I, am I following his wisdom? Am I willing to listen then to his wisdom and his counsel and to follow his advice? See, he wants to come into those times of crisis, those times of heartache, those difficult circumstances where the wine has run out. And that's what he does here at this wedding. And listen, whatever your crisis situation is, Jesus is there ready to come in. Now, not only does Jesus want to see, or John want us to see Jesus, uh, that Jesus cares for our needs, but he tells us in verse 11 that what is taking place here is a sign. And we mentioned already that, that that is a miracle with symbolic or theological implications. The wedding account isn't just about turning water into wine, but something deeper and something more significant. Certainly, he changes the water into wine, and all the guests say, oh, this is great. That's not the point. Ultimately, that's not the point. It certainly meets a need, but there's something more significant that's taking place. So let's move now to what I'm calling wedding wine. Wedding wine. Let's notice how carefully John gives us the storyline. We're going to read verses 6 through 10 here. And I may make some comments as we read, but I want you to see the specifics of what is being said. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. And he said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. Now, there's just a lot of specific, detailed information that John gives us here as to what's going on. And so I, I first of all, just want to emphasize that John is carefully telling us that Jesus told the servants uh, to fill six water jars with water. But these are not the normal pottery water jars that you would think of. We're told here they're the, they're the stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification. In other words, what is kept in these water jars is what? Water, okay? Not for drinking, but for purification. Okay? What does that got to do with anything? Well, like I said, these are not for storing water or for, for wine, but they're for water. But now what comes out of these water jars is wine. But not just any wine. As the master of this whole um, marriage says this is the good wine that you've kept to the end, right? You're bringing out the good wine at the end. Wine is symbolic of joy and gladness. You might want to write down Psalm 104, 15. There's probably a few places we could go to, but it says there, wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine. It's just a, it's a word, and it's a, and it's a symbol for joy and gladness, yes, that even comes through Christ. Now, I understand just a little caveat here. I understand that for some who do not drink and uh, think that, you know, the, that alcohol is something you should stay away from, that, that even the discussion here might be a little shaky for you. But in Jesus' day, wine was the drink of choice. You didn't have this spread of all these different things. You can you know, go up to the bar and say, oh, I'll have something on the rocks and all that kind of stuff. It's like, what would you like? I'd like some of that wine. I mean, that's just what came out. Okay? Now, there is a distinction in Scripture. 
the, 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 the pure wine was incredibly strong, and that's why in Scripture it's called strong drink. It was a common practice for them to cut the wine simply because it was so strong and it was hard to drink that they would cut it, they would dilute it somewhat, but it would still have a very strong alcoholic con- uh, content. And listen, when you're living in that kind of a culture, you want a little bit of alcohol to kill some things off, right? I'm just this is the reality of it, right? So even the stuff that they were drinking had alcoholic content that was somewhat significant that after drinking and drinking and drinking might kind of dull the senses so that people wouldn't notice the quality and the level of the wine that was being offered later on in the week, okay? So, you know, just understand that was it. There, there wasn't much of a choice. There was wine, okay? It's a whole other subject, but let's leave it right there. The point here is this, and here's the point that I think we need to recognize, okay? The, the symbolism in, in all this begins with this statement. Life without Christ is empty. If wine represents joy and gladness, ultimately it represents the fact that with Christ, there is joy and gladness. With Christ, there is life. There is abundant life. But without him, there is emptiness. Without him, there is no significance. Without him, the wine has run out. Now, let's... First of all, look, just look at Judaism in particular. The, the Judaism of Christ's day was obsessed with ceremonial cleanliness. Anyone here ever, ever been to the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem? I don't know if you ever had the opportunity. I remember we were, we were there, and I remember standing there and watching, just purposely, uh, watching all the men come and having to go through the ceremony of cleaning themselves just with their, their, their hands and their face, and they would go through all these different things. There, there had to be this, this, this ceremonial washing that was taking place. That's what these were used for. These were used for ceremonial preparation and cleansing, ultimately for worship. Mark chapter 7, verse 3 says this, For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly. And all the moms say, yes, right? But you have to understand, this is not washing with soap. This is going, just going through the, the ceremony of it all, okay? Holding the tradition of the elders is what it says there, okay? The emphasis then in Judaism at that point in time was only on the externals. It was an outward show of religion and not an inward God-orienting heart condition that was pursuing being cleansed. And so you just kind of go back to John the Baptist's baptism of repentance was basically saying, listen, the, 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 the ceremonial washing is not enough. It has to be something that's taking place in the heart. Even under the, the Jewish Judaistic system, there still could be a heart cleansing, and John was appealing to that. Repent, repent. That's not a ceremonial thing. That's a heart thing. Okay? So Jesus is picking up on that, and that's why specifically he's saying, fill up these jars with water. Okay, Fill them to the brim. Okay, now what? Now go serve them. So with the coming of Jesus, the Jews, ultimately, those who held to the realities of the Old Testament would now have something better. John chapter 1, verse 17. Again, don't recognize exactly what John is saying until maybe we come to this passage. We go back a few verses now. John chapter 1, verse 17. For the law was given through Moses... Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. <laughs> okay? Old, emptiness, wine running out, new wine needed. The only solution is Jesus. William Barclay says this, The six stone water pots stand for all the imperfections of the Jewish law. Jesus came to do away with the imperfections of the law and to put in their place the new wine of the gospel of his grace. All right? So this, this life without Christ, in particular for the, for the Jews, um, was empty. Secondly, um, it's empty in what's called liberal Christianity. Mainline denominations, Christian denominations, um, typically have gone the way of liberalism. Liberalism theologically meaning that they deny that God's word is actually inspired by God or is even sufficient 
They would actually even deny that Jesus Christ himself is sufficient to meet man's needs. He's helpful. He's an example. He's someone you can follow. I mean, what would Jesus do, right? It's, it's very, very um, purposeful in its neglect of certain uh, topics like sin or God's judgment or the resurrection. Um, the liberal Christianity would basically replace all those things with what's called a social gospel. It has a tendency to be very, very social oriented and has as its focus more mercy ministry. Okay, and this is one of the problems we can have. Is mercy ministry something God has called us to? Answer, yes, but not independent of or to the exclusion of the real satisfaction that people need, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The social gospel basically removes the atonement and the cross and says, you know what, we need to love one another. Okay, and that's where these big themes come out. It's the liberal church, the liberal church in America and even around the world. Oftentimes, they are clearly opposed to God's clear teaching of Scripture on particular issues that are coming up in society. That's why you're left scratching your head and saying, why is it that this particular denomination will affirm homosexuality, will maybe um, won't fight against um, you know, things like abortion or even social issues it's just th that run contrary to Scripture? It's because they have basically taken the Word of God and the Gospel and jettisoned it out. And they have the form of godliness, but they deny the power of that godliness. Okay? And um, so just be careful. Just because you're going into a building or a gathering where it's called a church doesn't necessarily mean that, that is exactly what's going on there. It may be totally liberal. Their religion is empty because they've thrown out Christ. Okay? Um, then there's evangelical churches who ultimately, not quite to the same extent, but they are uh, struggling, and I'm just saying the broader Christianity that might say, hey, Jesus Christ is God and we believe those truths, but they have ultimately been feeding their flocks with an empty Christless gospel, get this, that is fixated with, uh, with pragmatic self-help. Pragmatism. We need to get people in the church. What can we do to get people in the church? We need to expand our walls and expand our buildings and expand our ministries. Yeah, but at what cost? Well, oftentimes the cost is keeping the, the cross central, keeping uh, the solution to man's sin, being the gospel, being central. And oftentimes um, even mentioning Jesus or Christ is taboo because it might, might offend someone. Um, I've been told that there is an axiom in Christian publishing today that if you want your book to sell, you must not mention the words Jesus or Christ in the title. Instead, you should use therapeutic jargon and promise worldly happiness through spiritual techniques. Okay? Listen, and I mean this with all sincerity, that is why one of the best sellers in the market that would be under a Christian label is a book entitled Your Best Life Now. Because it's not talking about the things of God. It's not talking about the gospel. It's talking about self-help, therapeutic tools that are so far removed from what God's word says. But it sells. Okay? That's why you can go to many churches and the, the, the pastor preaching is saying, here's five ways you can build your relationship with your spouse. And that's building a relationship with your spouse is a good deal. But people are starved because they're not being taken to the Word of God and, and, and learning how to mind the Word of God and seeing the power of the Word of God. They're just being given these therapeutic self-help techniques and tools and say, now go on your way. And all of that, friends, is devoid of the gospel. Now, I might put it this way. The problem here is that Christ is left out of the picture. And I say this carefully. It's not that he's not mentioned. He is mentioned. But much of the gospel is left out. And the real answers and the real need is not addressed. It's not addressed that man needs to cleanse his guilt through the blood of the cross that came through Christ's sacrifice on the cross. It's not uh, instructed that the transformation that is necessary to take you from the place where you're at to where you need to be is submitting to the, the di direction and instruction of the Holy Spirit through his word and your obedience to that and your love for doing that. Christ and his gospel has been jettisoned out of the church in that way. Now, you might want to even say that even irreligious society, so society that doesn't care about religion, would actually show up at a wedding and say, hey, this is great. You know, oh, it's nice that they were up there and they said their words and they kissed and all that kind of stuff, but I can't wait for the reception, right? 
Woohoo, man, party, yeah. You know, I enjoy this. I'm living for the moment. I'm having a great time. I don't want to deal with God. I don't want to change anything in my life. I, I don't want to live for something noble or something that would be true. I just want to live it up. I want to enjoy life. And basically, it's a life that is, has as its goal and its focus fulfilling your own sensual appetites, whatever they may be. It is a godless life, get this, that does offer some wine. But it is a wine that is fleeting. It doesn't last. And so what those people have to do is they have to numb their thinking and they numb it by all sorts of things and they are truly helpless and struggling. Turn to Isaiah chapter 57. Isaiah 57, verse 20 and 21. Isaiah 57 and verse 20 and 21. Just listen to... Um, God speaking through Isaiah here, just describing the wicked and understand the wicked to be maybe this, ir this irreligious society. But the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. There's just no peace. It's one pursuit of pleasure, one pursuit of sensuality after another, looking for the next high, the next way in which I can just live it up and enjoy life. But, it, it, you know, the next morning you're laying in bed or you're, you know, you're in the bathroom, you know, with your head in the wrong place. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a mess. But they think more and more of that is ultimately the satisfaction. And no, Jesus is the satisfaction. This is the point. Life without Christ is empty. When the wine is gone, we are in a crisis mode and we need the right thing to satisfy us. And the answer, of course, is Jesus. So the second thing here is this, that life with Christ is abundant. Life with Christ is abundant. Again, looking at verse 9 and following, when the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn out the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. This echoes Paul's words that we looked at earlier on, and that's 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. The new has come. And this is, this is a picture of spiritual transformation that takes place in the life of believer. A couple of chapters later, Jesus is going to say, unless one is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. This is a transformation. Listen, um, we're born again by the grace of God through his mighty word. Peter, the apostle Peter, in 1 Peter 1.23 says, you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. All Jesus had to do, did you get this? All Jesus had to do was to will the water to turn it into wine. He didn't touch it. He didn't go over there and stir it. He didn't pray over it. He just told the servants, fill up these stone jars to the brim. And now go take it to the master and see what he says. He just willed it to take place. All right? Same pitchers, same water, different results. All because Jesus is the one that brings new wine. Now, it's an incredible picture here. We're told here how many gallons these would fill, typically 20 to 30 gallons. There's six of them, so that's anywhere from 120 to 180 gallons worth of wine. And as this master of this wedding says, good wine. All right? Now, um, the point here is that when Jesus enters the picture, when he comes giving this, this new life of regeneration, he's not sparse in his gifts, he is lavish. This is new life, and it is abundant life. And that's why we've, we, we, we love John 10.10. 10. The thief comes only to steal and destroy, or steal, kill, and destroy. I come that they may have life and have it abundantly. So the goal for Jesus is that we would have life and that we would have abundant life. 
that this new wine then represents this picture of this, this, this old life that has waned away, but Jesus comes and he, he, he d- brings out of that this new life, this new wine that is full of joy and full of abundance. So it's not only abundant life, but it's a life that's full of joy. You know, the fruit of the Spirit is what? Love, joy. It is the fruit of the Spirit. All right? It's all part of what it means to be a follower of Christ. Joy is there for us. It's part of our fruit. Listen to what James Boyce says, just relating to all this. Some Christians go around with grim looks and long faces. So everyone right now is smiling because they don't want to be identified as that, right? If they find themselves in the company of someone else who is having a good time, they immediately suspect that the cause of the fun is either illegal, immoral, or fattening. (laughs) Jesus was not like that. He did not condemn those who were enjoying themselves, and he was not jealous of them. As a result, he was welcome at their gatherings, and those who had invited him listened to his teaching. Are you like that? If you are, you may find that people are not only pleased with your company, they may also be willing to listen to your testimony. Now, just think through your attitude, your behavior, what goes on through your head when you're in certain contexts that you're saying, "Mm, they're just having a little too much fun here for Christians. Okay? Now, I realize we all have to be wise and we all have to apply biblical truth to that, but Jesus is not offended with celebration. That's the point. And we are, as God's children, if we understand who we are in Christ, that we have this new wine, that we have abundant life, and that that wine is a representation of joy, we should be people who celebrate celebrating. Okay? So it is okay to clap your hands when we sing worship songs, all right? It doesn't offend God. It is okay to laugh and to smile. It is okay to eat a good, hearty piece of pie at a home group or some kind of a celebration, okay? It's okay. Just don't do too much of it, right? Because then you become a glutton, all right? Uh, just, you know, there's checks and balances here, but hey, celebrate. Celebrate being the body of Christ. Celebrate this new life that we have together. Now, this final thing is wedding witness. It brings it kind of to a point ultimately and says, here's why I gave this to you. Here's, here's the reason why I used this data and this story of the wedding of Cana so that you could see something. He says this is the first of his signs. We've identified what that is. Jesus did in Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. The word manifested means to make known, to, to show abroad so that people could see. Now, this is actually a semi-private part of Jesus' ministry. He's not yet fully public in his ministry. Who is it that knew what had taken place, the miracle that had taken place? All right? The servants definitely. All right? Very likely Mary, although we're not told that, because she, she apparently left because she left it with Jesus. The disciples are watching. Okay? So, so we have here just... Jesus being made known, it first of all showed us a little bit um, about his person, all right, his person, that he is God. Now, they've already heard that he's God, right, multiple times. It's been part of the theme of chapter one, but now they get to see it, that he just tells the servants what to do, and boom, it turns into wine. They, they, they are able to see firsthand as eyewitnesses, John, who's recording it, I'm sure was there watching this. Jesus really is divine. Secondly, um, it showed his ministry. It wasn't just simply to show his glory. It was also to meet a need, right? So they go hand in hand. He didn't just do it to show his glory, but he did it also to satisfy a need of a family that was facing potential village shame and humiliation. Now listen, when you're, you're facing your crisis and you say, God, I want you 
in that crisis. I want you in that difficulty. I want you in that trial. And even in the midst of trial, I'm going to force myself into this place where I am joyful because you promised me abundant life. When I do that and I allow you to work and I see your hand at work in my life, what does that do? That encourages me, but also potentially as a byproduct is an encouragement and a testimony to others. God is meeting my need, but he's also through my need, testifying of his goodness through me. And I can just tell you over the past year and a half how God has provided for me and my family through our difficulty and our needs and you in your circumstances. I'm sure many of you would be able to stand up and say, here's what I've been going through. Here's how God's provided. Here is how he has made himself known. And you need to know that he is God and he is a good God. So it's a sign to manifest his glory. And the ultimate then goal and result here is the disciples' belief. He wants them to believe. He wants them to see, and he wants them to believe. And what we're told here is, and his disciples believed in him. Does that mean conversion? Well, you know, it's not crystal clear because they've already affirmed, hey, we found the Messiah. They're in this process of growing in their belief. And so are you, (laughs) And that's why you haven't welcomed Jesus maybe into a certain area in your life because you're not willing to trust him. You're not willing to believe him. But the disciples are growing in their understanding, growing in their belief of who Jesus is. Now, let's finish this up because I have one minute. No, I have ten. All right. Oh, it's plenty of time. No, I'm not going to go that long. All right. Here's just some thoughts. New wine is available for all today. In other words, life with Christ is available for all of us today. Life without Jesus is life without new wine. It's life that is going to be empty. And so I want to speak, first of all, to those of you who are not children of God. Now, I don't know necessarily who you are. Some of you may may have the form of Christianity, the form of walking with God, um, and you still deny his activity and his presence in his gospel, but you've maybe grown up with it, you've, you've spent time around it, you are aware of it, you could even talk the language, and so you can fool a lot of people, okay? I know that because I was in that context too. I just, I wanna just press home here that your joy and happiness is temporary and it is empty if you do not have Jesus Christ central in your life. Right? The, the, the kind of things this world has to offer, they may be fun for a season, but they also have behind them niggling and nagging and lo- uh, lingering and, and, and struggling implications that you will carry with you through life. Oh, it may seem fun at the moment, but it has its consequence. You say, well, I don't care about the consequence. I want fun now. Please, please, please don't say that when you have Jesus Christ who is saying, listen, I'm willing to come in, and I'm willing to give you new wine. I'm willing to breathe into your life a freshness, a joy. And listen, joy is different than happiness. Joy is a constant. Happiness is something we experience. Oh, it was a good day. It was a happy day. You know, the the Lions won again. Anytime the Lions win, it's a happy day because they never win, right? But listen, life can be happy over ridiculous things. Silly things, but joy is rooted in the core of our lives. Struggling, maybe I can't find work, or I got this this physical disease and it's painful, but even in the midst of it, I find joy because I am rooted in the fact that he is at work even through my trial. I'm not happy, but I'm full of joy. It's perspective that only comes for allowing Jesus to be central in your life. So I just plead with you, consider the gospel. Consider the fact that Jesus went to that cross, died on that cross, not simply to get you a ticket into heaven, but by virtue of getting that, getting that conversion and that process taking place to usher you into a relationship with him that is abundant and full of joy. And it's a life that is ongoing. Secondly, to those of you who are God's children, can I just plead with you, fill your life with new wine. There's a lot of pursuits that you can go after in this world. But fill it with that which lasts 
that has substance to it, that is truly joyful, keeping Jesus cent- center of everything. That means that you'll be, you'll be working on the thinking and the teaching of Jesus, that that would be central in your, in your passion, that the ministry of the Holy Spirit will be at work in your life, that you'll, you'll be developing the, the ability to be sensitive to what he's saying through his word to your heart. Abundant life is yours, but you must be listening and believing and following him. Now, one last thing before we close it here, and I think it's just it's worth saying this. Um, many of us are going to be gathering this week with our families for Thanksgiving. It's not a wedding. It's a different kind of celebration. It has cultural implications, although those cultural implications do have some real Christian religious backgrounds to them, right? This is just one more opportunity for you as God's children to bring God back into the picture. Now, I'm not saying that you go to the turkey and say, hey, the turkey's like God and all that kind of stuff, right? I'm not, I'm not saying try and find symbolism in the ceremony. What I'm trying to say, though, is thanksgiving is about what? Giving thanks. And who's the reason you can give thanks? And why? What has he done? I mean, Christian thanksgiving is not about Indians and pilgrims. It goes way back farther than that about a cross. It's about a a triune God who before the world was created already chose you to be part of his family. Already was aware of what you were going to be accomplishing. Already had determined to send his son to a cross to die in your place so that you, by faith in him, could have eternal life. These are all opportunities when we're with family to testify of the goodness of God and the grandness of God and the beauty of God. So when you're taking a piece of that chick or that turkey breast or that, that ham that you have or the sweet potatoes or the pumpkin pie or you go down there, right? You know what? How many of you are typically satisfied after a Thanksgiving meal? Maybe you're too satisfied, right? How many of you are satisfied with the things of God? How many of you would love just to eat and eat and eat to your fill to be satisfied with Him? See, there's so much that He wants to give us. Don't cut Him short. Lord, help us today to learn from this wedding how awesome and great you are. You are the Messiah. You are the one true God. And Lord, you have come and you've come to enter into our lives. You've come to give us life and to give it, uh, give us abundant life, Lord, and life that is with you and life that, that you want to share with us. And Lord, so many times we fear that. We think you're going you're gonna to force us to do things that we hate and and live by rules and things that are just going to hinder us from having fun and joy. And that is not what your word teaches. Your word teaches us that when we are in you, we are full of joy. We are satisfied because you are the one who satisfies us. We may not understand all that, Lord, but help us by virtue of your Holy Spirit today to embrace that as true. And Lord, to hunger for, for growing life in you. We ask this in your precious name. Amen. Please stand.